And now, Thriller Thursdays on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. The Case of the Defective Detective, Part 2. The name's Dixon. Trixie Dixon, girl detective. I cannot possibly begin to guess at the number of times that I have suggested that a prospective client begin at the beginning. And on the whole, it was good advice, if for no other reason than it makes for a straightforward narrative. Like most excellent advice, it was easier to dish out than to take, because we had certainly skipped over it in the matter of Lawrence Braithwaite, former gentleman detective and current first-degree murder suspect. Perhaps it was for the best. Braithwaite had told his story to Matt Dawson, legal eagle extraordinaire, and it was such a golden oldie it might as well have been blue skies. He didn't do it. This was all a terrible misunderstanding, and so on. If a person is going to change their circumstances dramatically, say by putting two slugs into his former business manager, Michael Sabatinsky, it was often good to know what else might have changed in their life recently. For instance, had they recently been shut out of their own detective agency by a woman scorned whom, as befits that status, hell had no fury like? Not long ago, Lawrence Braithwaite had been a man who could have shot Sabatinsky in the head in the parade grounds on the 4th of July and still had reasonable doubt industriously engineered on his behalf. Now he was a sad sack counting on people he actively disliked to save his fanny by using something in which he had very little interest. The truth. Dawson had some tap dancing to do in front of a judge, which was just as well because where we were going, defense attorneys are not afforded the aura of respect and collegial welcome that the haircut that walks like a man and I are. You can't go in there, Sergeant Nelson called from across the squad room at robbery homicide, trying his very best to project some authority. Did you hear something? I asked Jack as casually as possible. I haven't heard anything in years, Jack shrugged, not slowing down as he opened Sabian's door. You can't go in there, Nelson called, tripping over his own enormous feet in an heroic and ultimately misguided attempt to prevent the inevitable. Oh, hello, Nelson, I called over my shoulder. Nice day, and closed the door with a rattle. Three and a half seconds later, I reopened the door. For heaven's sake, Nelson, I scolded, why didn't you just say he wasn't there? Nelson looked flustered and seemed to be holding his head as if he had injured himself in some pratfall which I tragically did not see. Would that have helped? he asked. I shrugged. Couldn't have hurt. Except that we probably would have gone in anyway and you do appear to have hurt yourself, so I guess no. Where's the lieutenant? Jack growled, proving once and for all that he was not the adorable half of the equation. Commissioner Hart's office, Nelson said, his fingers twitching anxiously at the mere evocation of the name. What did he do this time? I asked with genuine curiosity. Not a thing, Nelson insisted vehemently, before adding more quietly, nothing that anyone knows about anyhow. Then he has bigger fish to fry than little old us, I offered. I guess so, Nelson agreed, visibly relieved. Good thing you're here, Nelson, I added. How's that, he asked, the color running out of his face. Well, forgive me if I'm wrong, but weren't you made the official liaison officer between robbery homicide and the city's private detectives, of which we are two, I asked, smiling sweetly, which ought to have warned him. Really, it should. 
Ah, shucks. Nelson blushed at being reminded of what he was probably told was a promotion when Sabian had certainly almost intended it as a punishment. I don't think anyone even remembers that. We remembered, I offered. Don't we, Jack? Vividly, Jack nodded in agreement. Nelson frowned. Then why do you always go straight to the lieutenant, he asked, not unfairly. We don't want to be a burden, Nelson, Jack said with something that was nearly warmth. Busy guy like you. Nelson practically swooned. Oh, just doing my duty, Mr. Justice. I'm here to help. Great. Jack chucked Nelson on the shoulder. How about the Sabatinsky murder? Oh, the Sabatinsky murder. That's open and shut, Nelson said, pleased with himself. The shooter was Lawrence Braithwaite. He ran a detective firm of the same name. Maybe you've heard of it? I couldn't tell if Nelson was being sarcastic or not, but if he were, it would have been the first time ever, so I was prepared to guess not. Any witnesses? I asked. Not to the shooting, but apparently they had a terrible argument in Braithwaite's office, and about twenty junior detectives heard that. About the company, though the door is thick, so no one knows much in the way of details. Don't know or won't say, Jack muttered. Nelson shrugged. Well, two days later, Sabatinsky was dead in a ditch on Route 9, just west of the water plant. Ballistics matched a thirty-two caliber pistol Braithwaite had registered through the company, and he was brought in. The company belongs to Braithwaite's wife, Yolanda Braithwaite, and apparently she's been taking that more seriously lately. D.A. thinks Braithwaite was trying to strong-arm Sabatinsky into helping him take back control. The shooting took place in a car, I asked, knowing it had. Nelson nodded. Well, that's how it looks. Traces of blood and powder were found. Looks like Sabatinsky was shot twice and managed to open the door and roll out. Highway patrol found him hours later. Looked like he dragged himself almost a mile. Heck of a way to go. It was Braithwaite's car? Jack asked glumly. Braithwaite has a lot of cars, Mr. Justice, Nelson nodded, all registered to the company. He passed a paraffin test? Jack asked. Nelson nodded. He did, but that was hours later. And a detective wouldn't leave traces like that. He would know better. He certainly ought to, I agreed. Jack nodded at me and said nothing. Thanks for your time, Nelson, I said. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Well, that's awful nice of you to say, Nelson stammered. Say, who are you working for? Mr. Sabatinsky is dead. He is, isn't he? I agreed. That's the sort of question you really ought to ask before you make nice with the skinny. Nelson thought about that for a moment, and decided to look quietly horrified and say nothing in the hopes that no one would notice, which seemed like his best plan at this point. We hit the street without any sort of comeuppance, which is always nice when it happens. This is thin, I offered. The thinnest, Jack agreed. Let us count the ways, I offered. Very well, he nodded. I buy the argument in the office, or at least I have no particular reason to disbelieve it. But what was Zabotinsky doing in a car with Braithwaite two days later, way out on Route 9, past the water plant? Would you even get in that car? I shrugged. Depends who's driving. There are some nice quiet spots out there. Jack paused for a moment, then made a face when he figured it out. Really? In a car? Oh, like you never, I snorted. Sure, he agreed, when I was seventeen and lived with my parents. Aren't you a little bit... sophisticated for that? I would appreciate that more without the little terrified pause while you searched for a word other than old, I said frostily. Uncontested, Jack granted. The point is that I don't think that's why Braithwaite and Sabatinsky were out there. If they even were at all, I added, the car and the gun aren't exactly mortal locks. 
Jack nodded. I think we've discovered how Matt Dawson has kept this quiet as long as he has. The DA can't be very excited about taking this one out for a ride. I snorted as I stepped lively through light traffic to get to the car. They don't even think he did it. They're trying to use Braithwaite's reputation as leverage. So why isn't it working, Jack asked, swinging the car door open. It's an excellent question, I said only a little bit grudgingly. We need to know more about what went on in that office. We flopped into Jack's old heap, which was increasingly the only way to get into it, as the seats had lost most of their structural integrity. You know, we used to have a man on the inside at Braithwaite's, Jack offered. Shut it, I countered. Ah, Jack said sagely, I see your point. Let's see how many laps of the secretarial pool we have to take to find Braithwaite's dirty little not-so-secret, shall we? For reasons, or just curious, I asked. Jack shrugged. Surprise me, he said. Jennifer Mullins didn't look too sophisticated for Route 9, but she didn't look like she was designed with it in mind either. Dawson had warned us that Braithwaite wouldn't like us talking to her, and we had, in turn, warned him that Braithwaite was not actually our client, but was his. He was in a bad spot, with a client that didn't want to help himself, a charge that was thin, but full of action words like murder and adultery, and a clock that was running out of stalls and fast. He gave us the name, and we made up a lie that got us past the switchboard. She had almost hung up on us, but relented, and agreed to meet us in a park that was a 15-minute fast walk from her office. She was clearly not enthralled by the idea of being seen with us. Who could blame her? I don't have a lot of time, she said as we approached the bench where she sat. Lawrence Braithwaite is looking at a pretty fair amount, Jack countered, sitting down on her left side. I slid in on the right. We weren't trying to strong-arm the girl, but the two of us looming over her would attract the attention that she didn't seem to want. I'm sorry about that, Mullins said, looking down, but there doesn't seem to be a lot that I can do about it. I don't know what happened between Lawrence and Michael. Any chance it was about you? I asked. She seemed astonished by the idea. Listen, she said. I was Lawrence's personal assistant for four years, and the emphasis was always on the personal. But it was nothing that anyone would have killed anybody over. I mean, I liked the guy, and I feel bad for him, but it was just... just business, you know. It was kind of expected, and it was fun, and everyone knew or could... Yes, I'm sure. Even Mrs. Braithwaite, Jack asked. The new boss? That's got to be awkward. Oh, Yolanda knew, I'm sure of it, Mullen said. She knew for years. Don't ask me how I know, I just... She knew. Truth is, I don't think she minded. I kept her husband entertained and out of her hair. I was useful to her. Now I don't know what I am. I just know I hate job hunting. Any chance we're done? What about Sabatinsky, I asked. No dirty secrets there? Mullins was silent for just long enough to speak volumes. I should go, she said. And then she did. The guard pressed a button and a loud buzzer sounded, almost overwhelming the clunk of the door unlocking. I wondered when this had replaced turning a key and opening a door, but I didn't wonder all that hard. On the other side of the door stood Matt Dawson, looking unflappable but not unaggrieved, flipping through a sheaf of legal papers. Nearby sat Lawrence Braithwaite, whose excellent posture had been replaced with the defeated slump of all jailbirds who begin to sense the permanence of their fate. The DA has run out of patience, Dawson said, releasing a cloud of smoke as we entered the room. We have a court date in the morning. So that's it then, Jack said, his gaze shifting to Lawrence Braithwaite. Time's up, Mr. Braithwaite. 
If it's on the docket for the morning, the papers already have it. You can be the gentleman detective, or you can be a murder suspect, and then an ex-con at best. You're the only one that can save yourself. No one else is coming. Braithwaite snorted. Why, Mr. Justice, I thought that was your job. Stop it, Jack snapped harshly. The time for cute is over. The DA's case might not be airtight, but it's good enough to ruin you, and no one can stop it because you aren't helping. This isn't how it works. First thing a detective needs is a knack for self-preservation. You've got your switched off, and I know why. Braithwaite said nothing, but he glared daggers at Jack, which I took as my cue to dogpile on. The car and the gun are registered to the company, not to you, sir. They could have been used by any one of a dozen people. Your attorney is too smart to have not noticed that, which means if he isn't using that fact, it's because you won't let him. And if you won't let him, it's because you have narrowed it down a lot closer than that. I don't have to listen to this, Braithwaite started to rise. You do, or I am gone, Dawson said with a point of his finger that would have stopped a runaway train, but without turning to look at his client. Miss Dixon tries hard not to mix business with pleasure, but Dawson was not making that easy, my friends. It all hinges on the argument, Jack said, gathering the suspects in the library. The DA says it was about the business. The DA says the car and the gun were for your use. You know better than that on both fronts. You wouldn't drive out past the water plant on Route 9 with Sabatinsky just to have another argument, and if you did, you'd have made him get out of the car first, and you'd have put one in his brain before driving away. A good detective would make an excellent criminal, but this? This is something different. This is a crime of passion, I said, cutting to the chase. The argument in the office wasn't about your wife's takeover of the company. It was about Sabatinsky's takeover of your wife. And before you get too indignant, we know all about Jennifer Mullins, though I know some guys can dish it out but not take it. Your wife wasn't muscling you out of your company because of your very personal assistant. She was clearing the way for her own lover. You scared Sabatinsky off somehow. Maybe he knew he wasn't cut out to sit in the big chair. I don't much care. He drove out to a beauty scot with Yolanda and broke it off with her, and she did not take it very well at all. That's what happened. You don't have to prove it, but if you're counting on the system to save you just because you're not guilty, you are absolutely out of your mind. There was no sound at all for a moment, though Braithwaite seemed to shake a little. Then there was a small burst of sound, which he struggled and failed to contain. It sounded almost like a choke at first, and then a gasp. His hand went to his face, clenched in a fist before his mouth, but the battle was an unequal one and he was losing fast, almost drowning. In another minute, this very dignified personification of scorn itself was shaking like a leaf and sobbing uncontrollably, apparently in grief that the woman he had two-timed for years clearly did not love him anymore. Dawson looked relieved, and in the end I guess that's what mattered, but the weeping threw a bucket of cold water on the party. This is awkward. I said quietly, not sure if anyone could hear me. I can take it from here, Dawson said, shaking Jack's hand. And that was how it went. Gillis and Baker shifted gears and took up representation of Yolanda Braithwaite after helping the DA to the conclusion that it was she, and not her husband, who had, in fact, killed Michael Sabatinsky. Sometimes that was just the way it went. Lawrence Braithwaite played the role of martyred saint like he had been born to it, and nearly bankrupted his recovered empire trying to cast a reasonable doubt on the whole dizzy affair, an effort which, as far as I know, continues to this day. Jack took solace in the fact that there was yet another thing he was better at than the gentleman detective, namely, being a decent husband, which I have been assured that he is. And me? I had the coffee tin square with the rent money, and that was all the thanks I needed, 
or was likely to get. And so it goes, my friends. So it goes. The Casebook of Justice in Dixon No. 5, The Case of the Defective Detective, was written by Greg Taylor and read by Greg Taylor and Andrea Lyons for the Dakota Ring Theater podcast. Dakota Ring Theater Season 16 is powered by Patreon. To support the creation of new Justice in Dixon stories, visit patreon.com slash g-r-e-g-g-t-a-y-l-o-r or look for the links in the show page. Dakota Ring Theater, the sound of adventure. So, do you like comedy? If you do, then Friday Follies might be just the feed for you. From the Mutual Audio Network, every Friday we bring you a selection of hilarious audio drama. And you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Just search for Friday Follies, or you could subscribe to the main Mutual Audio Network feed. It's up to you. Find us there. The Mutual Audio Network, listening and imagining together.